Hello and welcome to another edition of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with the slightly toastier than usual, Teos Abadia. <laughs> hey, Teos. Hello, everyone. Hello, Sean. Uh, yeah, I'm in Phoenix uh, for Thanksgiving week, so I'm using my laptop. Hopefully the audio is okay. I'm sure that you will sound as intelligent as you always do. Huh? Exactly. You, 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 you are making my point for me. So, no uh, more smarts. Yeah, yes. Th- this uh, mastering our own intellect is now the name of this show, uh, and it's probably a failure on that front. But nonetheless, we will persevere, delivering the typical news and commentary that you are tuning into this sh- show to hear. Starting with more hiring at Wizards of the Coast in the D&D section. Uh, in this case, some pretty important roles. Uh, a senior game designer, as well as multiple art editors and an art director. So, you know, that's only the people that actually make the book. Yeah. Uh, so that's, uh, some juicy stuff. And I can imagine that there are people... All kinds of people who are tuning into this uh, job and and gonna give it their all, but um, we've seen in the past that these these can be prominent people, but they also can be names that not everybody knows. And so I would encourage if you if you mm-hmm. are interested in this, give it a shot. Yep the uh, the major thing to remember though that this is a senior game designer, so while you know anyone could apply they are looking for someone with six years experience designing role-playing game products with significant credits from known publishers. So uh, it's not necessarily someone who we're all aware of True. that has, you know, been posting things with Kickstarter or on the DMs. The Guild. DMs Guild. Yeah. But you know, there, there, I'm sure there will be plenty of uh, folks who are listening to the show who fit into that category. So if you do apply for it, we wish you nothing but good luck. And yeah, the same for the positions, the editor positions. Uh, you know, that's something interesting in the industry because Teos and I, you know, having kept an eye on the industry for so many years, have seen the editorial staff or Wizards of the Coast expand and contract Yes. quite uh, significantly at some points having like four or five editors on staff. And then at other points using a totally freelance based editing team. Uh, so that's a, another thing to, to watch, you know, as, as the year progresses and these hires are made, how the books change, how their quality changes, the number of books we see, if that changes, you know, based on these hires, or if they're going from a more freelance based system of content creation and editing to an in-house staff. So, you know, all of that stuff is, is important for we who cover the industry to keep an eye on. One thing I'm very curious about is, is, you know, these positions for editors, as you said, it's a, that marks a big change, that idea of having editors in-house again. Um, and I, you know, I, I welcome that, though I think we've been very lucky that most of the books are overseen by very good editors that we know and have even had as guests on the show. Sure. But, um, but the, the, you know, this doesn't say anything about developers and that's probably because development is probably seen as something that one of the wizards game designers sort of oversees. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I'd love to see that be, and I, maybe it is, but, but in the past when I worked like say during the fourth edition era with wizards of the coast, there was a strong sort of development check-in moment. And that would often happen within that editorial group that existed back then. Um, but that idea of really, you know, I'm not the person that, that fine tuned the words or anything like that, but I'm looking at it as a new set of eyes thinking as the audience, how will this register with me? And very importantly, having the power to say, no, wait, folks, stop. We need to go back and adjust this so that it works well for the audience. Um, I, I thought that one of the editor positions was actually a developmental editor. Oh, okay. Well, I, uh, that's really good news. I did not look at the editor job uh, description, so I'm really happy to hear that if that's the case. Yeah, I think that's I'm, something that, that would be really useful. I'm on the site now, and I'm not seeing it, although I am 
98% sure that when I looked at it, you know, a few days ago, it did say developmental editor, which, okay. which is a whole different kind of editing, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not copy editing. It's not proofreading. It's actually getting in there and sometimes even being more of a project manager type in right. terms of getting all the content uh, moving in the same direction. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's a very important distinction. Awesome. Yes. Senior developmental editor. There you go. Okay. Fantastic. I'm really glad to hear that. That's, um, that's good because I think as growth kicks in, it's all the more important. And I think, you know, you and I have remarked like when we reviewed Van Richten's, right? Van Richten's felt like it had such a good cohesive vision. And that may be by happenstance. I mean, and I don't mean to belittle the people involved when I say that, but sort of it may have been because you had strong developmental oversight, or it may just have been that it was all really good, right? Sometimes good ideas gel, but sometimes it's because you have this really strong hand that sees the overall picture and makes it work. And so having that as a formal job position, I like to see that. Yep. And that being a senior position also is asking for six plus years experience editing technical manuals or text heavy games for known publishers. So there you go. Those of you who have heard me say before that games are technical manuals. Uh, Wizards of the coast agrees in the terms, in terms of the senior developmental editor uh, that that's what they're looking for. That's cool. Yep. So lots of good news on that front. Um, Let's go from our head to our feet. Uh, so you want to tell us the news of in D&D footwear? Yeah. So people get feet at levels. Oh, wait, no, you meant, uh, yes. You mean mm-hmm. your actual feet. Uh, yes. Well, you know, we like to joke on this this show that we reach the X stage of D&D, you know, some new marker that just you never thought D&D would hit. And we have reached the Crocs stage of D&D because yep. Crocs, which are those rubber shoes that have the sort of holes on the top, it's, you know, very popular for gardening is i think how they kind of initially grew as a scene and then just you see them all over the place um they can be decorated with these sort of little charms that you stick in them and clip through the holes in the shoes well 25 dollars now gets you a set of official crocs D themed charms mm-hmm. there's an ampersand a beholder mimic red dragon gelatinous cube etc and boy you know this is a day i never thought i'd see yeah Yep. So now you can wear your D and D Crocs while eating your D and D sandwich meat, and then follow, following no. that up. Oh, in in Italy. Uh, well, someday. I mean, yeah. And we uh, hope. And then uh, washing it down with your D and D nerds dessert. Yes. Yeah. Yep. That part you can do. So there you go. Uh, yeah, we're getting very close to the D and D branded Bologna Bologna uh, stage of D and D. That's 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 the pinnacle. We yep. aspire for. We can retire uh, happy on the day that we <laughs> right. can go to the store and pick up our Oscar Mayer. That's uh, the day we close down D and D because it is a cheap yep. perfection. Because it doesn't get any better than that. Uh, speaking of getting close to perfection, Strixhaven, <laughs> a curriculum of chaos, is now going to release on December seventh. But we are seeing some previews from reviewers and other influencers who have received uh, preview copies. So we're seeing art shared on Twitter, blogs discussing what's in it. Uh, have you heard any juicy rumors there, Teos? You know, nothing. Uh, well, there have been a number of things, and, and I always like avoiding the spoilers kind of towards the end, but something that I didn't think was much of a spoiler and, and is super fun and, and shows the kind of attitude of this book is that the adventure that is with that comes with Strixhaven has four stages reflecting four years of study. And mm-hmm. I thought that was, you know, whoever thought of that and saw that, that's good, right? That's really nice. Yeah. There was a book that Alligator Alley kickstarted. And I don't, I edited that, but I don't remember the exact title and I haven't looked it up, but it's, a, you know, it was a, basically a tome of books, books that you can put into your campaign. And they put an adventure in, and I think Greg Marks may have written that, which did that same thing. It <laughs> It did, you know, Year one, this is what happens. Year two, yeah. this is what happens. And, you know, that's such a great Harry Potter-esque uh, yeah. Yeah. nod to show your progress, not only via levels and via the difficulty of the encounters that you take on, but, you know, as you as you get smarter and more mature in your education, uh, yeah. the the story is reflected. So that's great. 
Yeah, and it's very clear from the things that are coming out that this is um, really taking to heart that concept of giving you the feel of being in a school situation with all that that entails. Like there are rules for relationships and things like that. And so, so it, it's it's really trying to give you that experience of of like what, what we see in any of those novels that take you to schools and then you're you know young fledgling person and they're fantabulous instructors and neat locations and so i'm excited to see this yeah so it's not that you have downtime so much as you have extracurricular activities and (laughs) homework yep nice nice uh so g4 has launched its new DD stream Uh, the show is called invitation to party it has launched and you can find it on twitch uh, at a link in our show notes. Yeah. I have not I watched I it yet. Weekly. Yep. Have not watched any of it yet, but if you are into the streams and watching people play for their stories, you can uh, do so there. Yeah. And, and Dave Walters uh, has, yep. it seems like he's been everywhere these days. It's true. Uh, every time that there is a charity stream, every time wizards is announcing a new stream, it seems like he is somewhere within it. So, you know, and great ambassador for the game. So, you know, very, very good on that. Uh, Last time we talked about D and D in popular culture and having the game appear on an episode of the sitcom, CBS sitcom ghosts. And I took the dive Teos. I, I went in, and, I did too. Oh, did you? Excellent. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad that we can have a little discussion on this. So I'm going to go first, and uh, you know, calm, rational Sean will say that my response to most sitcoms I watch is, "Well, that's 20 minutes of my life that I will never get back." Uh, and you know, it's not my thing. It's not my genre. It's not an art form that that I gravitate toward. Uh, but I will say that this episode did not dissuade me from that opinion <laughs> uh, it was a sitcom that part it, it was it, it was it was a sitcom and it it rose to the very very low level that sitcoms uh strive for us as far as as far as i'm concerned um and but i thought the use of D in the episode was interesting on a few levels not necessarily good but worthy of discussion about what D and D is seen as in our culture at this time. Yeah. Yeah, and, that's fair. Yeah. So I mean, I'll just share my, my perspective. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I, I am. I also, in fact, I was struck by how long it's been since I've really watched a sitcom. I've watched a, a few things that are sort of sitcom ish, but, but, but really that sitcom f- format where you feel like the laugh track should play Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a long time since I really watched something like that. And, and, and my wife and I remarked on that, uh, that said, we did enjoy it. In fact, we, we enjoyed it enough to go back and, and watch a couple other episodes of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I guess this is one of the bigger new sitcoms that's out there. And so a lot of people are enjoying it. So it's, it's fairly popular. So it's neat to then see a D and D episode in there. And the foundation for it is, is laid in that several previous episodes have the, one of the main characters, the guy in the relationship, um, you know, wearing sort of geeky T-shirts throughout, like Atari T-shirts and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I without having watched any of the previous episodes, it sort of came across as, you know, in this relationship uh, between this man and this woman, um, he's sort of the geeky outsider. She's sort of the one that has has things together. Uh, you know, in, real in, skills and capabilities. Well, she, she's the one that sees the ghosts. So right there, you're establishing in your narrative that she's the one that has the sort of the point of view yeah. that, that you're going to be following. So in, in, in essence, it, it makes him without trying to makes him the outsider yeah, in the that, the sidekick and the, the sort of geek, um, mm-hmm. which it's not done on purpose, but it actually shifts that narrative dynamic to her being the quote unquote normal one, even though she is the abnormal one in the sense that she's the one that sees ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. 
So, so yeah. So what did you think of the overall way that they portrayed D and D? I I think they did what most sitcoms do with topics like this. It's they try to, they try to make the thing, the, the quote unquote oddity. They try to make it normal, show it's being normal while at the same time undermining their own narrative by showing the people involved in it as different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, right from the start, we see the the man in the relationship playing online, playing D&D online with his friends who are all in the same room, but he's online. So uh, his connection keeps cutting out. He's obviously dragging the game down because of this. So, uh, so they decide to go with their new friend and jettison him from the game. Yep. But instead of jettisoning him from the game by just saying, listen, you know, instead of being mature about it, instead of being adults about it, they're like, well, we'll just kill his character. Right. And then he is sort of distraught because not because he was kicked out of the game, right. He doesn't come down the stairs and say, oh, they just kicked me out of the game. He's like, they killed my character. So it's this sort of it's sort of this motif of D and D players can't tell reality from fiction because they're they're more focused on their character than on. And I mean, later he does come around and say, "I just lost my best friends uh, to his partner." You know, when when he's trying to get her to understand how he's feeling. So you know, it's it's right from the beginning that was that sort of nerds are immature and can't handle yeah. can't separate reality from fiction can't handle reality and they have to do it through a game you know that sort of thing right away i was just like no no you know don't don't do that have 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 him be mature enough to say i really like this game and my friends i can't do it with my friends because of technology so let's find a way to to do it here yeah it's interesting because there have been a few examples um recently where people played D and D like I'm thinking of the episode of that show that had, you know, like William Shatner and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on there where sort of start to finish. It really was like, this is cool. Yeah. And they also found ways to, by the end sort of say like the famous people who, you know, are, are sort of the, 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 the fun acceptance factor. Well, they actually want to play with the girls in the group and not with the guys who are the original hardcore nerds. Right. Because you guys are sort of annoying. And actually a lot of the most fun was playing with the women from the group. Right. And so the overall to me, the, the whole narrative sort of worked and that D and D was positive sort of start to finish and the new players became established and in fact, you know, took off with it. And so I, I liked that better. There were a number of points in the story of this where D and the D and D game sort of gets this feedback of like, well, I don't like it from some people. I like it from others but in a sort of a, a annoying clash rather than, you know, just like, yeah, it's okay. You know, maybe it's not what I want to do all the time, but I like it. it. It just had that constant little negativity against it. Right. And, and you didn't see that same idea that, you know, the wife by the end of it say was a pro at it or, um, or identified with it. She should have was always not working with it. Right. Like always right. not feeling it. Right. And, and so, you know, when when you're writing about something that's not in the mainstream or becoming mainstream, it's if you want the real comedy to shine, make fun of the game, make fun of the thing itself and not the people that take part in it. Because D&D is a silly game at its root, right? Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's, it sort of is. There, there are silly, silly parts to it. And, but there are also silly, silly parts of every single thing yeah. that we do. Um, you know, from, from playing poker to, to sewing, to, you know, doing all sorts of things that we do as hobbies that we do for relaxation that we do for fun. There's silly parts of it. So show the, you know, show the silly things of the thing rather than pointing to the people that do it and make stereotypical references to them. And what's really interesting to me is that both uh, the the character who is into D and D there, you know, it was played by Utkarsh, who has been uh, he was on Force Gray, 
Um, and uh, so he's familiar with D&D and likes D&D a great deal. In fact, he he requested that the his character that gets killed off in the story is his character from Force Gray, Hitch. Okay. Right? Yeah. So, so he was he was he's in real life nerdy enough to be like, can we use my character name? Yeah, and uh, a Dragon Talk episode talks about all of this, and and has um, uh, the head writer for Ghost there, who is also a big D and D fan, who's running like four campaigns currently, you know, like yeah. hugely into D and D, and yet we get this sort of tired story approach. Yeah, but I mean that that for me that's that's what a sitcom does to anything. Maybe I guess almost so. right. Yeah. You're sort of going for the lowest common denominator, and it's it's if you like sitcoms that's fine you know th- there is humor in it that i can absolutely understand why people find it funny but it doesn't like delve into anything deeper than that surface laugh um yeah. which which to me is isn't isn't worth the time i can get the surface laugh pretty much anywhere uh well i think Another thing that, that that got me, it's not just that service lab, but I think there have been sitcoms that showed what D&D is a little better. Like this, one thing that was interesting is this was all fifth edition products in all the shots. Yep. Whereas usually it's been older editions. True. So that was one thing. It was kind of neat to see the current version of the game. Yeah. But other game, other shows have done a very good job of showing why D&D is awesome, right? Like mm-hmm. portraying right. the battles, the scenes, the interaction between DM and player why you become invested in a magic weapon you get or how the party might even disagree with one another and, and have these choices of like, do I do this or the other? And they've used that as parallels for their larger storyline of say like a father son interaction, you know, dad, are you really going to go and do that when I want to do this? And that was lacking from this in, and in fact, almost like, even though there was the possibility of it. So like at one point they were, they're going to clear up a, a military dispute by right. playing the game. Yeah. But they, in fact, resolve it in other ways. Right. So even what the game is sort of theoretically going to allow them to do, it doesn't really help do. And right. I thought that was sort of a strange choice. Yeah. And it's the people from the 18th century that call the game boring. You know, these are people that didn't have any sort of entertainment that we have today. No TV, no, no yeah. movies, no, saying, yeah, this is boring. Let's just. Yeah. So it's. Yeah, it was it's weird. just yeah and i mean the the one part where i was like you almost got it was when you know the the female protagonist says well you know i'm going to play because i want to do, be with you yeah. you know i'm doing this for you and he and the 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 male character said yeah kind of like i joined that book club right for you right and you're like i'm like yes there there is the the recognition that everyone has these hobbies that other people find boring or not fun or whatever, but you still come together to do them. But it was just like a throwaway line uh, that, that you could have really, you know, shown how, yes, this game is funny. This game is strange. This game is weird, but so is the other things that we do. And, you know, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because that, that was the thing that uh, registered the most in our household was, you know, my wife at several points where there were those kinds of moments turned to me and said, yeah, I'm sorry, because she does not game, right? She knows how much right. I love it. She will yeah. every now and then join a table with like the kids or something like that, just to sort of make it work. But, but is clearly just doing it for me. Right. Sure. And yeah. that was funny. Yep. So, you know, if, Hey, if you have an opinion on this and you saw the show, yeah, let us know, let us know what you thought. Uh, now, we're gamers, so we're going to get in on the action. And if you don't have the Essentials Kit for some reason, you can get it for 50% off at Target, running a special right now. You can get it for $7.74. Good hours, hours of fun, hours of playing for $7.74. I mean, that's the price at which you should just buy like 40 and just give it out to everybody you know. That's pretty much yeah, what, what, what I try to do. Seven seventy four. That is shocking. Yep. yep, and you know it's funny because the essentials kit was essentially made for Target uh, mm-hmm. to to sell. So it's fitting that Target has that at a special price. 
And last bit of news, we may have reported on this, but we're going to again if we if we did. Um, Winter Fantasy is February 2nd through 6th, 2022 in sunny, balmy Fort Wayne, uh-huh. <laughs> Indiana, uh, where they hate money. So if, if, you, if you are an Adventures League fan, particularly because this is an Adventures League heavy uh, convention, even though they do run some other things and have a board game room set up generally, uh, this is where you can get in. And I'm mentioning it also because Bald Man Games is disseminating a player survey where they are gauging interest in uh, things like masks, what, how many slots would you come for if you're coming? Uh, you know, what types of adventures are you looking to play? So if you're going to be there, let them know so they can have the uh, information that they need to make the best decisions. Yep. And that yeah. is our news segment, unless you have anything else to add, Mr. Abadia. No. All right. So let's dragging it up. Let's kick it back into gear and talk about Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons. Last week we covered the introduction, some of the lore changes, discussed the three new draconic races, and now we're going to continue with chapter one, talking about the new classes and other character creation aspects. So let's jump right in with subclass options, of which there are two. Uh, the first will be the Monk's Way of the Ascendant Dragon. Uh, do you want to begin I, our I discussion just, here? I pasted in this uh, description that Fizban provides. And, you know, all, each of these books recently has had a, a, a character associate, right? We've had Tasha's, we've had Mordenkainen, we've had... Uh, uh, Xanathar, right? And and it does a couple things. One is it's very clever branding. It's a way to sort of trademark all of your work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's clever that way, but it also just gives a voice and a theme to everything. And so Fizban has his quotes here. And so this was, you know, my favorite ascendant dragon monks all narrate their bodily attacks aloud with fun onomatopoeia, swish kapow indeed. Right? I just think that's really really great i I will have to i the next character i play will be a way of the ascended dragon monk um so i will definitely have to do that it's a pretty neat subclass uh tell us about it sean yeah so the concept of this subclass is the monk uh integrates magic with its spirit to uh bring together both essences into the material plane uh, the first monastery of ascendant dragon monks is said to have been created by Bahamut himself. So uh, the first thing, you know, we get that concept. We get a table of six possible ways that a monk might have gained their connection to this origin, which is becoming sort of a standard thing in many of these books. And then we get into the rules themselves. So at third level, you get dragon, a draconic disciple. Uh, Draconic presence. If you fail a charisma or intimidation, a charisma intimidation or charisma persuasion check, you can use your reaction to re-roll the check while you tap into the mighty presence of dragons. And then once you use it, you must take a long rest before you can use it again. Or once you succeed. Yeah, right. So yeah. if you fail, even after you re-roll, you can use it again until you succeed once. Yes, right. you know, on Reddit and online, this kind of came up as a topic that uh, a lot of DMs will treat skills such as a persuasion check or a intimidation check as a sort of degree of success to decide how greatly you are you are influencing someone. And so there was there was sort of this this even polling of people like, do you do you you know what would you do with this? And to what extent does it mean that sort of a player isn't really failing when they make a roll they're, they're sort of getting a particular outcome of it and so re-rolling is sort of interesting and in fact whether you roll to a success level is a maybe a hard thing to define in some games and at some tables yeah um I, i'm overall okay with it but i thought that was interesting to sort of hear people discuss this yeah it, it is an interesting discussion it doesn't change this particular rule because there is a rule that says this is a success this is a failure 
So your house rule does not make this rule any better or any worse. Um, True. But I, I do, I do agree with that thought that a lot of people probably do this um, for social type roles mm-hmm. specifically, but even for roles where there might be a clear success or failure. Um, I have noticed some DMS and myself included may do that sort of indie game concept of great success, success, you know, success with a consequence or, or failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, you're trying to break the door down. Well, you do succeed, but since you were just below the DC, uh, you make a lot of noise when while you do it. Right. You know, that that right. sort of thing. So yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and especially when it's like you know, are you? You're, I'm trying to convince the guard to let us go. You know, to pass through. Here's I, I I tell you what my what my argument is. Then I roll yeah. and I get this particular result. And a lot of times it's not just the role that the DM is using, right? It's, it's an improvised right. role. It's not a DC that's written out in the adventure. It's, it's really, you know, it's not like climbing a wall that has, you know, DC 14 to climb. It's an right. on off switch. Um, you might decide to have a complication because you rolled a 13 or something like that, but in general, it's a fail success, but something yeah. like trying to persuade a guard to get through that may not be in the adventure. The DM's just sort of riffing off of what you roll and what you said and taking them together more than ever these days, I'd say. So yeah, yep. it's interesting. Yep. And there can also always be narrative consequences as opposed to mechanical consequences. Yep. You know, there, there's something funny that happens or something serious that happens uh, because you, while you did get the outcome you were looking for, there, ha- there was this sort of one consequence that was narratively important as opposed to game mechanically. Uh, also, at level three, you get Draconic Strike as part of your Draconic Discipline. Um, so with Draconic Strike, when you damage a target with an arm strike, you can change the damage type to Acid, Cold, Fire, Lightning, or Poison. Uh, okay, seems reasonable. Yeah, yeah, it's neat in that, you know, this is a nice thematic thing because it's your unarmed strike doing this, and it's not spectacularly powerful. Um you know, it, it, in general, it'll be no difference. It's just thematic. But every now and then, it'll be perhaps hopefully rewarding, you know, if you can exploit a vulnerability or avoid a resistance by doing yeah. so. And and what this really does, mechanically anyway, is get around the problem of the monsters where you need a magic weapon to hit it to do bludgeoning, piercing, uh, or slashing damage. With this, you can do, you know, this sort of elemental damage that, will probably at least one version of this this attack will actually fully damage the creature in question. Yeah. Yeah. And the final uh, element of Draconic Discipline or Draconic Disciple is Tongue of Dragons, which lets you speak, read, and write Draconic or one other language of your choice. A, a not unworthy level three Suite of powers, I think. Yep. Uh, seems pretty good. But wait, but, there's more, Sean. But wait, there is more. Because at level three, you also get Breath of the Dragon. And Teos, you want to take that? Sure. So this basically gives you a breath weapon. Uh, and it's it's like what we saw with the races. Uh, when you take the attack action on your turn, you can replace one of your attacks with this exhalation of draconic energy. Either a 20-foot cone or a 30-foot line that is five feet wide. So you choose the area of effect you want. And then you choose a damage type. So there's a lot of flexibility here. And every creature in the area has to make a dex save against your key save DC. They take damage of the chosen type equal to two rolls of a martial arts die. uh, Half if they succeed. And that's not particularly strong damage because you generally have your martial arts die plus your dex. And your dex is probably as good as your martial arts die. So you're not getting much by getting two dice. So it really, where it works is because you could get multiple targets. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's when it's going to play, play off. Um, later you get, so you get number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, and then you can burn two key po- points to get it again, uh, to use it again. You're unlikely to do that because there's probably better uses for key, but hey, it's nice to have the option. 
At 11th level, you get three rolls of your martial arts die. There, mechanically, it tends to be now getting pretty good. Um, that's now, you know, your die has increased and, and having three of them at this point, you know, it is pretty neat. Um, so it's going to grow in utility over time. Um, and you had a note here, Sean. Yeah. So one thing I'm, I'm noticing as I start to ponder, uh, you know, our game design choices this far into 5e is we've switched over now to this number of times equal to your proficiency die. And that's, I think that's a good metric of how to pace something as you increase in level. However, with these subclasses, if you multi-class, you could end up with three or four different subclasses if you, you know, multi-class in just the right way with just the right classes. If all of them are based on your proficiency die, you are getting an increased bump in power mm-hmm. Uh, because you know when you get up to six plus six, you're getting six uses for each of the subclasses that you have sure. that use this proficiency die as the metric. Yeah. Uh, so you, it, it's not necessarily overpowered. Just in general, you could fi- probably find a way to make it overpowered, but it's just it's that one thing that doesn't quite scale the way that I think it's intended to. Right, right. Yeah, that's but, a good point. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a small thing. Yeah, it's interesting. It's something to note. I think it's a thing that designers want to put on their sort of checkbox, right, when they're looking at a subclass to say, how am I using proficiency bonus? And does that become overly powerful right. if I just dipped in for this right. feature? If you say, you know, it's a D10 per proficiency bonus, for this breath weapon that would then scale on unfairly right in in the favor of the the characters but for the number of uses unless it's a very powerful uh or very useful ability that you get to use once per proficiency bonus then it's not necessarily a huge deal it may get unwieldy but not overpowered uh, so at level six, then you get wings unfurled. When you use your step of the wind monk ability, you can unfurl spectral draconic wings from your back that vanish at the end of your turn. While the wings are there, you have a fly speed equal to your walking speed. And you can use this feature a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. Um, so again, you know, you even if you only take six levels of monk, if you take 10 levels of something else, you're getting uh, that proficiency bonus for the 16 yeah. combined levels. And I, I like this feature. Um, it, there are a number of things in these uh, in this book that seem to suggest that maybe Wizards is not as careful of flying as they have been in, in, before. You know, we've talked about in the show where I, I just see Wizards being very reticent to grant flying. And this is limited. It's just for the turn. Um, but it's neat and you can do it a number of times. And what it does give you is if you think of martial arts movies where you have that sort of wushu uh, ability to kind of go across rooftops or go up the wall and kick somebody, you know, you can really dip into that here, which I think is just extremely cool. And having just watched, you know, Shang-Chi recently, like that's just super fun to. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Having, having this, the fly speed end at the end of your turn, I think is, is uh, just, the difference maker there. Um, so you can't fly up into the air and pelt someone with arrows or spells and not be touched. Yeah. You, you, you have to be standing on pretty solid ground. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at 11th level, you get aspect of the worm. So now as a bonus action, you can create an aura of draconic power that radiates 10 feet from you for a minute. Um, you gain the one of the following effects for that minute of a frightful presence where you can frighten a creature, one creature within your aura. Uh, and they get to make the wisdom save against your key DC save, uh, key save DC, excuse me, or frightened for one minute and they can repeat the save at the end of each of their turns or resistance. You can choose a damage type when you activate the aura and you have resistance to damage for that time. Anything else? Yeah. 
Um, so you get it uh, back when you finish the long rest, or you can spend three key to get it back. Mm -hmm. Ten foot aura is pretty limited. Um, it's not a big problem for Fightful Presence because you generally as a monk can move all over the battlefield pretty easily. So, you know, you just need to get within 10 of the creature you intend to hit with mm -hmm. the Frightful Presence and you'll be fine. But with this sort of resistance aura, you know, if you're in the lair of some dragon or something that's, you know, spewing things, getting everybody within 10 feet of you is not easy. Mm -hmm. uh, it, even if you plan for it, if you tell everybody, you know, hey, stay within 10, I mean, you know, good luck yeah. having that happen. Right. Um, so it's sort of fairly limited in that respect, but in some key situations, it could perhaps work out where you yeah. can really, you know, hey, everybody, huddle, huddle to me, and right, you know, we're going through a trap or something like that. Yep that that brings into you know question the party makeup because if you have a paladin as well, that's going to add plus six to your saving throws, saving or throw. you know, then maybe. But otherwise, grouping together for that resistance means that you're actually going to be in the in the yeah. In the flames in the first place. So. In the fireball. Yep. Mm -hmm. And at level 17, you get Ascendant Aspect. Uh, you can hey, you have the following benefits. You can augment your breath. So if you use Breath of the Dragon, you can spend a key point to augment its shape and its power. It becomes a 60-foot cone or a 90-foot line that's 5-foot wide. And then each creature in the area takes damage equal to four rolls of your martial arts die on a failed save or half on a successful one. So, yeah, that's pretty sweet because yeah. a key point is not hard at level 17. And so that's a nice yeah. bump to, to do yeah. that. And this, it also brings back that question that we mentioned last time of you can, you know, you can take one of your attacks from an attack action. If you get more than one attack, can you do that again and again? Because right. that, you know, that now you're, if you could, if you would normally get three attacks and you're doing this augmented breath three times, uh, that's, that's a thing. Yeah. Uh, as an ascended aspect, you also get blind sight out to 10 feet. Uh, you can see invisible creatures within the range unless it hides from you. You know, blind sight's pretty strong. But yeah. at 17th level, okay. Right. Why not? Yeah, it's pretty strong. I mean, 10 feet uh, is pretty good. So it's not just even adjacent, but uh, it basically means that if you know where the invisible creature is, you can go stand by them. Mm -hmm. You, you know, are never worried about it. Right. Um, and they're not getting, you know, their sneak attack or their combat advantage on you. You know, they're not getting, uh, they're not getting the, the, uh, advantage against you on attacks and, and you're not getting disadvantaged. That's pre pretty sweet to have as an always on thing. Yep. Yep. And the final uh, element of ascendant aspect is explosive fury. Um, when you activate your aspect of the worm, draconic fury explodes from you. You can choose any number of creatures you can see in your aura. Each of those creatures must succeed on a dexterity saving throw or take 3d10 acid cold fire lightning or poison damage okay so yeah, it's cool because it's a, a boost to you know it's when you turn on that aura now you get to sort of do this explosion against just the creatures you want which is pretty sweet it's not yep. you know everybody there um and and I, I think because it's a monk i like this because your positioning is now sort of even more fun yeah. than it already is usually as a monk so you can be like i want to start here turn on my aspect explosion you know to get these creatures and this person in the aura is you know frightful presence and, and then i move yeah. over here and i attack and i breathe and right <laughs> so that can yeah be pretty fun for monks yeah that that's a lot of things a monk can do uh but again 17th level i unless yeah. something's like really really out there i don't have too many problems with 17th level abilities yeah, this is, I mean, 3D10 is not some enormous pile of damage at that level. Right, so it's just, right. it's just fun extra yep. stuff you're doing. Oh, does it say? So when you turn on your aspect of the worm, how many times can you use your aspect? Okay, yeah, once per long rest. So it's, yeah, okay, cool. Um, I was just wondering how many times you could turn that on, but it's just the, mm -hmm. it's just the once per long rest. All right. Or three key to do it again. Yeah, exactly, yep. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that was the uh, 
way of the ascendant dragon the monk subclass uh i'm fine with it i liked it enough on first reading to say hey i want to try this yeah yeah cool and then we will get into the second one ranger the subclass known as drake warden fizzban has some more to say uh they say that rangers tend to look a lot like their bestial companions that makes drake wardens among the most attractive of humanoids (laughs) i.e. you look like a dragon so with this you use your connection to the natural world to take the form or or to take a companion that's a draconic spirit which manifests in physical form as a drake as your power grows the drake grows as well going from a small four-legged companion to a majestic winged creature large and strong enough for you to ride so you want to ride a dragon this is your subclass. And you also gain some of the powers of dragons yourself. We get the certainly omnipresent six table of six possible connections to the draconic spirit and the draconic world. And then we get into the subclasses features at level three, you get draconic gift. Uh, so you, the bond that you share with your Drake allows you to have the following benefits you can learn the thaumaturgy cantrip which becomes a ranger spell for you and you can speak read and write draconic or one other language of your choice seems kind of familiar and as with last time this is just these are good but they're leading up to the big feature in which case this is drumroll please the drake companion (laughs) tell me about the drake companion so this is, I mean, this this is the key to the class, right? This class is like the Beastmaster that we saw revised in Tasha's and uses a lot of that sort of underpinning concept, uh, a stat block that is going to get better over time, that kind of thing. Um, and it's really a super flavored Beast Companion. So mm-hmm. as an action, you can magically summon the Drake that is bound to you. So this resolves things of prior editions where you had to, you know, carry it around all the time. It appears in an unoccupied space of your choice within 30 feet of you. It's friendly to you and your companions, obeys your commands, use the statistics that come in the book. Um, and this stat block uses a proficiency bonus all over the place, PB. So it, as your proficiency bonus increases, it's getting stronger too. Mm-hmm. One thing that's kind of funky is you get to determine its color, its scale texture, any visible effects of the draconic essence, which is neat, nice role-playing angle. Um, but also you are determining it's sort of like damage types and things like that with things like it's breath weapon. And you can change that uh, each time you summon it, which means that it's sort of, it's not like you're like, Oh, I'm a green dragon, uh, you know, ranger. You can be green one time, blue the next Mm -hmm. and uh, fuchsia the the following, right? It's it's sort of up to you how you, you dress it up, which is kind of interesting. Um, it's on your initiative count, takes its turn immediately after you finish your turn. It can move and use its reaction on its own, but will only the only action it takes on its turn is the dodge action unless you're down or unless you take bonus action on your turn to command it to take another action. Remains until it's reduced to zero hit points or until you summon it again or until you die. Um, when you, it's, a, it's usually once per long rest that you can summon it but you can expend a spell slot of first level or higher to summon it. So that gives you a lot of capability there. Yeah. One interesting thing about this design is that because it uses your bonus action and you're a ranger, that means you probably don't want to be a two weapon fighting ranger because you will need your, you, your bonus action now can't be used for that offhand attack. Um, so don't tell Drizzt. This is, you know, <laughs> if he was hoping for a figuring of wondrous power, uh, subclass to come along the way, you know, he might not want that with his dual scimitar attacks. Good story. Um, so at level seven, bond of flame and scale. What do you think of this, Sean? Okay, so when when you summon your Drake, you get, it gets wings and a fly speed. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, and when you summon your Drake, you gain also a few other benefits. Uh, the drake grows to medium size and you can use the drake as a mount if your size is medium or smaller. So you can ride, even as a medium creature, you can ride this medium mount. That's interesting. 
But if you, uh, while you're riding the Drake, it can't use its fly speed. Right. So, okay, I can see why that would be necessary at, at level seven. I'm cool with that. Uh, any comment on that fly speed thing? Uh, I think that the, having it have a fly speed is super cool. Uh, again, Wizards usually is kind of really down on flying, but I guess because it's your companion and it's a little more, more, more vulnerable, then, you know, having it fly around is, is okay because uh, it's not you. And But that lets you do a lot with it, right? You could have it fetch things. You could have it attack the thing that's way over there. Uh, up you know on a balcony or something a lot of of tactical things which makes it shine i think that's really neat i like that a lot Mm -hmm. um the idea but that does then contrast with when you're mounting (laughs) your mount if you're riding it then you know you've got to get off to do that um that the idea that you can ride it when you're medium is very interesting because we've always seen the sort of like halfling on a riding dog you know gnome on a whatever and so the idea that you could be, I guess, a centaur and theoretically ride this. A centaur riding ex- riding a medium drag. world dra- explode when that happens? I, I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm looking forward to the, the world explosion. That's that's the challenge to everybody listening is, you know, make yep. a centaur character that uh, rides their drake mount around. And yep. And vice versa. You know, you could put it on your back, too. Why not? Uh also, as part of this level seven uh, bond of flame and scale, you get Magic Fang. The Drake's Bite deals an extra 1d6 damage of the type chosen for the Drake's Draconic Essence. And yeah. you had a um, thought there. You know, it seems to mechanically incorporate what Hunter's Mark would be giving you, so you don't fall too far behind other rangers. Um, you're probably a little bit b- below Rangers in terms of the damage, but you're getting some flexibility and you don't have to cast Hunter's Mark and it's kind of always on. So it's probably mm-hmm. works out. Yep. And you also gain resistance to the damage type chosen for the Drake's Draconic Essence. So just like the Beastmaster with a little extra frosting on top. At level 11, you get Drake's Breath as an action you can exhale a 30-foot cone of damaging breath or cause your drake to exhale it. So share a breath weapon. Why not? You choose the type based... Uh, you choose the type that does not have to match the drake's draconic essence. So you, you want your drake to be you know, a cold-dealing, cold-resisting drake? Okay, fine. You can use fire, though, or lightning, or poison. Yeah. Uh, then they each creature in the cone must make a dexterity saving throw or take 86 damage on a failed save, half as much on a successful one. So you've got a 30 foot cone doing 86 damage at 11th level. Okay. Uh, you know, if you can get lots of people in the target, great. It can be, it can originate from you or your Drake, gives you some flexibility. Uh, that damage will increase to 10d6 at level 15. And then once you use this feature, you can't until you finish. You can't use it again until you finished a long rest, or use a third level ranger without third level spell slot. Again, if you're multi-class, could it be right. a wizard spell slot? Interesting, right. Right. interesting design choice to not let's say third level ranger spell slot. Right. But well, we'll see. Uh, any any thoughts there? Um. You know, the damage is pretty high, but the uh, the thing to keep in mind with Rangers is generally their DCs don't tend to be amazing. Mm-hmm. So you sort of have to imagine that the target is making its saving throw. It's sort of the safe way to, to, to plan on it mm-hmm. in terms of damage-wise. At least when I play my Ranger, I mean, I don't choose anything with a saving throw because it's just, it's like an almost anything. Because it's even, a, you know, it doesn't matter what level my Ranger has been. I felt like everybody was saving against anything I ever put on them because my, my number w- was so low. Yeah. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind in terms of the tactics of it. But I, but I overall think it's neat. It's really weird that, that y- it can emanate from either you or your Drake. So explain that, but okay. You know, I'm a centaur riding a Drake and then I breathe. It's, you know, okay. Mm-hmm. I probably would have just had it come from it, which I think tactically would have been interesting because it can fly. 
it would probably make you use that feature more. So I probably would have just had it come from the Drake, but it's fine. Yeah. Awesome. And finally, at level 15, you get perfected bond. You gain the following uh, benefits when you summon your Drake. Empowered bite. The Drake's bite attack deals an extra 1d6 damage. So now that's 2d6 total extra damage. The Drake grows to large size. And when you ride your Drake, you are no longer prohibited from flying. So at level 15, we get, you know, go full fly. Very cool. Um, And reflexive resistance. When either you or the Drake takes damage while you're within 30 feet of each other, you can use your reaction to give yourself or the Drake resistance to that type of damage, uh, of that instance of damage, sorry. Uh, so you can use your reaction a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. Uh, and you can regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm... Yeah, I, I think this is not, you know, going to be at the top of your DPS charts, but I think this is a pretty flavorful subclass. Very fun, mm-hmm. solid variant um, Beastmaster concept. It makes me wonder whether we're going to see more of these Beastmaster concepts because you could certainly, you know, reuse this with something, some other type of theme, and it would work really well too. So I'm curious, we'll yeah. see that. Yeah. Also, so... can I just say, yeah. Bond of Fang and Scale is like, you know, your future, uh, uh, you know, novel title. I mean, that's just great. Yeah. I love the sound of that. Fine. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. I flavor, flavor wise. I love this. Uh, you know, like you said, probably not the most powerful in terms of damage dealt per round, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm cool with, with the flavor, with the, the idea of that. So here's my question overall. So I, I play a, a chromatic dragon born, monk third level monk of uh of the ascent way of the ascendant dragon 11th level uh drake warden ranger so now i'm i can breathe fire i can breathe use a breath weapon as you know a racial ability as a monk ability and as a uh ranger ability mm-hmm. on, on my action on my bonus action and then as part of an attack uh, if I take an attack action, uh, too much dragon breath. <laughs> is is there is there, is there such a thing as too much dragon breath? I, I think your DM might uh, feel like it's too much dragon breath. <laughs> See, I want a party full of these people, and all they do is oh. go around breathing on people. I mean, you know the friends to do it. I do, I do. <laughs> Um, everybody breathes all the time yeah and on each other right just oh exactly hurting one another why not why not that's part of the fun yeah it's it's sort of a it's sort of a i like it but it feels like that sort of specialization that only i can do this sort of thing Uh just gets thrown to the wind when we get too deep into an addition um yeah I i felt that reading all of these various things that grant you the ability to breathe it sort of felt like well if you're a dragonborn at the table you might feel and someone else takes like if you're a dragonborn fighter and someone else takes one of these subclasses you might be like well, okay i was gonna breathe but yeah you breathe that's fine yeah why don't we all breathe <laughs> awesome well we've still got just a couple more things to to talk about but i i'm kind of losing my voice so Yep. Why we don't do we and then the yeah. magic together? Yep. So we'll cover the rest of the uh, character options and then the dragon magic chapter next time. So thank you all out there who are listening to us blather on and on and talk about our favorite pastime. Um, and thank you to our patrons who support our Patreon and give us the the money to support our support our habit here uh so teos i i i've heard that you do things on the internet is that true there are rumors that can only be confirmed by going to alphastream.org and signing up for my mailing list uh then you'll know that it's true or you can find me on twitter at alphastream what about the rumors i hear about you sean they're all totally false except for those times when i go on to twitter at sean merwin and and talk or if the podcast itself tweets out uh, from 
at MasteringDND, or when we're on the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com, then it's true. But otherwise, totally false. And and Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So, Mr. Abadia, now that we have discussed all the ways we can breathe on our enemies, what are we going to do now? We're going to, in true Acquisitions Incorporated C-Team fashion, vomit up a line of acid to kill some monsters. Nice. Oh.